for a little while, I was taking a friend each month to the hospital for an appointment. It turns out I was more than a ride. I was also the guide. You see, to get from the parking lot to the clinic, it was quite a journey. My friend wasn't very comfortable taking an elevator, so we had to use the stairs, which complicates things even more, because the hospital entrance, which was ground level, was the fourth floor. Yeah, I know, confusing. To get to the first floor, you got to go in on ground level and go down three flights of stairs. Now, the first time I discovered this, I was convinced that the guy who made the signs must have lost his job. It's a labyrinth. Each time we go down one flight, we'd have to exit into a long corridor where I could never remember if I was supposed to turn right or left to find the next flight of stairs. And every time I found myself saying the same thing. Why isn't there a sign sticking out from the wall so people can see where to go? Now, there is a sign beside the doors that access the stairs, but they're flat and you have to be in front of the doorway to see it. It drives me nuts. Mostly because it happens every month. And I mean, at least I get all my fit steps in, but if you're late, which often we are, wow, these are frustrating times. So after months of this same experience, showing up a little bit behind and in a hurry, it kind of felt like Groundhog Day, but it looked like a scene from Maze Runner. And so I asked my friend, do you think you could ever find this clinic without me? They looked at me and didn't need to say no. It was written in anxiety all over their face. I remembered saying, I wish they would have a sign. I can't believe they don't have a sign so people can find these stupid stairs. I can't be the first person who gets lost every time they come here, I said. You would think in an emergency, this would be important. And suddenly, the craziest thing happened. As we walked out into the hall from that stairwell, with those words still on my lips, I was faced with our usual dilemma, trying to figure out if we go right or if we go left, and I was stopped in my tracks. It was a miracle, glowing, lit up, it was illuminated, a sign, spelled out. It even had an arrow, and it hung above each and every door, sticking out into the hallway, all lit up, announcing each and every stairway. And they weren't new. In all caps, glowing in fire engine red, they said, EXIT, with a tiny little arrow letting you know if the stairs go up or if the stairs go down. I was stunned. How had I never seen these before? I felt so stupid in that moment. I stopped and I said aloud, you've got to be kidding me. There are exit signs. My friend said, of course there are. I said, you saw them? Why didn't you tell me all these, all these months? He said, because you told me you were looking for stairs signs. Because I was looking for stairs signs, I missed every other sign. We often only see what we want. And we walk past what we really need. But what if there's more here than we can see? More here than we can comprehend in any given moment. More than our disappointments. More than our fear. More than our anger. More than our frustration. But we just can't see anything more than the filter of our feelings. Of our circumstances. Of our expectations. Now that phenomenon of only seeing what we're looking for, not necessarily what we need, happens in every aspect of our lives. It happens physically, it happens emotionally, it even happens spiritually as well. But if we could see the signs, and not just the ones 
that we're looking for, but the ones that are looking for us. They might be life-changing. One of the perennial gifts of spirituality is this notion that everything we're looking for is already right here in our life. But sometimes we just cannot see it. I want to tell a great story. A story that I think can help us. It's a familiar story for some of you. One that we will need to hear again and again and again. A story that for us can actually become a sign to help us find where we need to be. A couple of weeks ago, we began to tell the story, the ancient story of Jacob. And last week, uh, Jan talked about his brother Esau. Jacob had his name changed to Israel after an evening of wrestling with his past. If you continue to follow Jacob's life, you will read of how he eventually has 12 sons who will become the namesake of the 12 tribes that will eventually become the nation of Israel. But those 12 tribes, those 12 sons, are known as the children of Israel, literally, the man named Israel. But before Israel is a nation, before Israel is a people, Israel was a person. And then Israel, Jacob, had children. And those children grew up, got married, and had more children. And the book of Exodus begins by telling us that Jacob and all of his children and their children move to Egypt, and they settle. And in total, there were 70 of them, a people group called Israel. And just as God had promised Jacob and his father Isaac and his grandfather Abram that they would begin to multiply and prosper and through them the entire world would be blessed, they find themselves enjoying a good life in Egypt for a time. Jacob eventually dies and a new pharaoh becomes ruler of Egypt and there's no history with the children and families of Israel with this new pharaoh. And overwhelmed with the size and fertility of these people who'd gone from 70 to thousands, hundreds of thousands, the pharaoh demands that the Egyptian midwives kill all the male babies born to the Hebrews. He's, he's scared that they may form an uprising. But these Egyptian midwives, they refuse. They don't. Secretly, they don't follow the Pharaoh's commands. The book of Exodus says that they saw God's blessing on these people and had respect for them and their beliefs. But the Pharaoh gets wind that the midwives aren't killing these firstborn babies. And he's wondering why these you know, male babies are showing up at all these daycares. And so these Egyptian midwives make up some excuse about how tough the Hebrew women are, who they give birth without them before they even arrive. So the Pharaoh demands all of Egypt, if they see a male child, to cast them into the Nile River. Now one woman from the family line of Levi, one of Jacob's sons, has a male child and decides to waterproof a basket and take her chances floating her son down the Nile River. And in a strange twist, it's Pharaoh's daughter who discovers him while bathing in the Nile. And this Egyptian princess takes Moses as her own child and she finds a Hebrew woman to nurse and raise him who just happens to be Moses' own mother. It's an interesting story, it really is. And Moses, this child of, of his you know, grandfather Israel, grows up with this interesting tension between privilege and his roots. He is a prince of Egypt, yet he is one of the Hebrews, one of the children of Israel. 
Now, nothing is written in this story of Exodus of these growing years. It's safe to assume that Moses enjoyed the spoils of someone else's work and the misery of his own people as the slavery and abuse only got worse. The more they were persecuted, the more they multiplied, like gremlins eating after midnight. It was an incredible story. But when Moses gets older, the writer of Exodus picks up and says that that Moses is one day out in Egypt and he sees a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian. And in in that moment, Moses has empathy for his own people. And he defends the slave and he kills the Egyptian and he buries the body in the sand. The next day, Moses again is out amongst his own people and he sees two Hebrew slaves fighting amongst themselves and he steps in and asks, why are you why are you striking your own friend? To which they look at him and respond by saying, you have nerve. Are you going to kill us too and bury our bodies in the sand? And Moses is terrified. He's shocked. Surely word has gotten out. And when Pharaoh finds out, it's over for him. He will seek to kill Moses. And so terrified, he flees for his life. He's no longer the prince of Egypt. He cannot be protected by his privileged life. He flees to the land of Midian, where he finds a new life and a wife, becomes a shepherd, watching sheep on the hillsides of this rugged land. Now, if you ask me, the jury's out on whether there was a promotion or a demotion. It sounds like heaven to me. And this is the part of the story where I want us to consider the implications. It's only nine verses in chapter three. It's not very long at all. But every word of this story is significant, the rabbis teach. Now Moses, here's what it says in chapter 3. It says, Now Moses, after fleeing Egypt, was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. And he led this flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to a place called Horeb, which means mountain of God. And there an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. The writer continues, Moses looked, and behold... The bush was burning, yet it wasn't being consumed. Upon seeing this, Moses says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. So he moves closer to get a better look. And as he does, God saw that he turned aside to look and that Moses was picking up what he was putting down. And God is bearing witness that Moses in this moment is recognizing the divine is trying to speak to him. And so Moses moves closer to listen. Exodus writes that God called to him through this bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses responds, here I am. And then the divine says to Moses, do not come near. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. Another way of saying this is you don't have to come closer because where you're standing is holy. It's sacred. It's enough. In fact, more than enough. And the rest of the story has God telling Moses to go back to Egypt and to set free the children of Israel, who by this time are half a million people, the story tells us. The task ahead is ridiculous and unbelievable, but the reason Moses does it is because this moment is enough to inspire and empower everything that's going to come after. This moment is more than it seems. So what are we to do with a story like this? What did Moses see on the side of this mountain? Was it an angel? Was it God? Was it a flaming bush? Those nine verses say it's all three. Is that possible? 
Let's just orient ourselves here for a minute. There's something universal happening here that can help us with the more specific details. We all begin in the same place as Moses, don't we? At some point, maybe many times in our lives, we stand on the far side of our wilderness, on the side of our mountains. For Moses, it will become the sacred mountain of God. Right now, it's an obstacle to climb. This mountain, Horeb, is thought by by many to be Mount Sinai. The mountain will become a bigger part of the story later on. Once again, our mountains and how we experience them often become a bigger part of our story later. And not just our story either. You may recall another story that will take place much later of this same Moses climbing this same mountain to receive tablets of stone, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Like Moses, we stand on our mountains. Unbeknownst to us, these may become sacred. Believe it or not, that obnoxious mound that seems to be robbing your view of your promised land may surprise you. But right now, this is just an obstacle. Except on this mountain, Moses notices something. A bush. A blaze. Probably not the first time in this climate that he's seen flames in the wild. A bush on fire is not extraordinary, necessarily. But the text says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within this bush and called his name. Come come no closer, remove your sandals, the place you're standing is holy. What did Moses see? Did Moses see an angel of fire? It sounds more like a heavy metal band. Or were the flames the messenger? The next line is our clue. Moses doesn't go over to see an angel in a bush. But the text says, he went to see a bush on fire that strangely was not being consumed. The next verse is pivotal. But when we read it over so fast, I think we miss it. It says that God saw that Moses went over to examine the bush. That this is the moment when God calls to him from within it. And here's where it gets even more unfamiliar for me. Moses hears a message from the bush that says, Don't come close, for where you're standing is enough, is holy, is sacred. I find it interesting that the holy ground isn't where the bush is, where the divine speaks, where the extraordinary burns. My flannel graph Christianity would want me to see the bush as the miracle on the side of this mountain, but that's not what the story tells us. The holy ground isn't the messenger of fire lighting up the side of a mountain where God's voice speaks, where a bush burns but isn't consumed. That isn't the holy ground. But but what about the angel? What, what, what about the fire? No, no. The story tells us the sacred ground is the place where Moses stands, actually where Moses notices. The text says when God saw Moses, Moses' awareness, he noticed. Moses paused. And then God calls out, stop, don't come any closer. He says, take off your Birkenstocks. You don't need to come any closer. Some ancient rabbis even teach that it's not a place that's sacred. It's the moment that's sacred. The moment of awakening, the moment of awareness, the extraordinary buried within the ordinary. I used to believe that what made this space sacred was God. But if we're to understand this story correctly from an ancient Jewish perspective, what makes this space sacred wasn't that God was there, really there, but that Moses was, and aware. Now, I've heard it said that there's no such thing as unsacred, that everything is either sacred or desecrated. I like that. For us, something is sacred because God shows up, but for the divine, 
Is it possible that what makes a place sacred is when we show up? And by showing up, I mean present, aware that there is more. Moses saw, he didn't just look, he considered that there's more going on here. There's a difference. Like the difference between touching and feeling something, between speaking and saying something. There's a difference between consuming and tasting, between hearing and actually listening. These aren't synonyms. There's a gulf between these two ideas, and that gulf is traversed by awareness, by being present. And we are meant to experience moments like Moses, moments that wake us up, moments that draw our attention, moments that open our eyes to hear. Yes, they are still at the mercy of our response, but the full potential of transformation exists. How long would you have to observe a piece of wood burning before you realize it wasn't being consumed? Seconds or minutes? You'd have to watch for quite a while, actually. They would have to be intentional. Perhaps the miracle isn't that the bush was burning strangely. The miracle is that Moses stops long enough to notice something, something meaningful and something trivial. It's peculiar enough for him to go closer to observe it. And this is why some rabbis teach that it wasn't a miracle at all. It was a test. That he could be present enough for long enough to notice the extraordinary within the ordinary. And when Moses goes closer to observe when he has been present enough to know there's more here. And when he moves in, the surrender to uncertainty, it's in that moment that God speaks. What are the implications of a story like this for us? What if it's more than a story? What if there's something embedded in this narrative about the way things are or about the way things can be? How many burning bushes have appeared in our lives, but we didn't take the time to recognize it was anything special? How many have we walked past? How many still burn unnoticed in our lives, waiting to encourage, to strengthen, to inspire us? For Moses, it changed his life, his curiosity, his willingness to be where he was. It changed his life and set a lot of people free. Him noticing a silly bush on fire gave him a new calling and a renewed reason for being. How many of us have missed our calling because it was coming from an unlikely and unseemingly ordinary place? We look up to the stars asking God to show up, yet God is all around us waiting for us to notice, to wake up to something beautiful, to a moment that desires to change everything that comes after. And what makes that moment special, sacred, worthy of us to take off our shoes, isn't that God is present. He always was. He always will be. It's that finally we're present. Or maybe like me, you walk past the lit up signs wondering aloud, why is this so hard to navigate? And how much easier would it be if there were illuminated signs giving us direction? What if it's all around us? Scripture tells us that God's native language is creation itself. In the beginning, God spoke creation into existence. When God speaks, creation blooms. It only makes sense to me to listen for God's voice there amongst the trees, the streams, under the stars, on the side of my mountain. I'll never forget that day in the hospital, running late for my friend's appointment, somewhere between the second and third floors. I wanted to take my shoes off because I realized a truth in that moment that burned deep into my soul, yet I wasn't burned. I was blessed.